did want to take just a moment and remind you as members of this congregation or those who are visiting, maybe looking for a church home or unaware of what our normal schedule is, uh, our Bible classes back in March were moved to Sunday evening. So at 5 o'clock tonight, we will have Bible classes for all ages. We have a class in the auditorium for those that are 31 and up and class in the annex for those that are 30 and below in the adult range. And then we'll have our teenage class all the way down to Cradle Roll. So we'd love you to come back at 5 o'clock and be with us tonight. We look forward to next Sunday night beginning a new quarter of studies. That will also mean that on Wednesday nights we'll be back to that also a a full slate of classes. And uh, if you have not been making, um, taking advantage of those things and being here, please consider uh, doing that. Um, Perhaps there are some still uh, upset or or worried or concerned and uh, that close environment of a classroom setting may not be exactly what you're ready for at this particular time. We understand that. Um, but if not, um, we would love to have you. And those that are listening uh, this morning by way of uh, the internet through Facebook or YouTube, we thank you for joining in. Also would encourage you, if you can uh, at all possible, be back with us and join us in those things. I mentioned on the last Sunday night, we were gone last week, the last Sunday night that I was here and teaching because an announcement got made after I had finished talking for the last time and I wasn't going to get back up, but I said I was going to do this and so I'm going to and I just want Cliff to know how much we love and appreciate him and um, I told him and I've, I've told him privately, I've said it publicly, Cliff was leading me and shepherding me before he was an elder and he will continue to do that beyond his time in the eldership, but uh, we love and appreciate him for his work and for his family. We miss uh, Sylvia and we will and have physically present with us for a while because of the struggles that she had had and unable to be in the assembly uh, a large portion of the time. But Cliff, we do love you and we thank you so much for uh, what you mean and have meant to this congregation. I've told several individuals leading up to this Sunday that I felt like the guy who decided that in order to fight in the Civil War and not to offend anyone, that that he would wear the, the, the pants of the Confederacy and he would wear the, 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 the shirt or the, the garment of the, of the upper torso of the um, Union. They found his body on the battlefield shot both in the leg and in the chest because he had been shot by both sides. Um, I feel somewhat like that this morning as we approach the subject of the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe that as we've considered the Godhead, and if you're looking for a a reference point on the the, uh, schedule, you won't find it in November. You'll have to go back to March, and that's a long story that I won't tell again. Uh, But we brought over the Godhead study into November. And so it was easy to overview that, although not easy in the sense of we understand it all and have it all figured out, but easy in the sense that we typically agree on most of those matters. And it was pretty easy to deal with God the Father, and, and, and Brennan talked about God the Son. And, and so we get to the end, and, and maybe if we hadn't had five Sundays in this month, I could have gotten away with uh, saying, well, we ran out of time, and so we'll cover the Holy Spirit some point down the road. Actually, that attitude, and I'm not saying that that attitude exists in anyone in this room outside of me, but that attitude is actually what leads me to the greatest dilemma of this morning. And that is when you haven't preached regularly on the Holy Spirit and you try to do in one sermon what needs to be done, what you realize is you'll never get it covered. You'll never get it covered. So what I want to do this morning briefly 
is I want us to consider six things about the Holy Spirit. Not a lengthy introduction. Um, and certainly these are not six things that are new. They are also maybe not your six things. If I were to ask you, what, what do you want me to cover in a, a one-shot sermon about the Holy Spirit? There may be six other things that you want us to talk about. Maybe it's a, a realization that we need to spend more time in dealing with the role of the Spirit in our lives, in the history of God's people, and, and, and the Godhead in, in general, and maybe we would understand it a little bit better. I'll say this, I'm not necessarily concerned about brotherhood controversies when I stand before you this morning. Okay? Uh, we, we, we are us. Okay? We're a family. Now, I know that this is going out um, for broad, broadcast and streaming, and it may be shared more than some others, but it really isn't my concern as to what a preacher down the road or a person down the road or a congregation down the road might believe or think about the Holy Spirit or particularly what I say in this setting about the Holy Spirit. We are a family. And when we take the Word of God as a family and investigate it, we need to investigate it honestly and thoroughly. And so this morning, I want us to do that. Six things about the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Spirit is a divine person. Now, I don't know of any writing that's ever been done to any extent of the Holy Spirit that didn't start in that place. And here's why. Because there's a gross misunderstanding in our world, religiously, about the nature of the Spirit. Now, I will say that that is, that is made worse and, and sort of exaggerated by a lot of the false teaching that's done about the Spirit, but also in the way that we reference it. The, the, the King James Version and many older versions, or some older versions, will, will call the Spirit in the New Testament the Holy Ghost. That reference alone creates in our current vocabulary a little difficulty. Because when we think about a ghost, we think of a, a ghostly being that, that sort of hangs out in the corner of church buildings at night. That's why we don't want to come in without anybody else, right? Because it's scary and, and we hear noises and we hear sounds. And so we, we think in those terms when we hear the word ghost. It's been pointed out before that that word in 1611 as it was used meant visitor or guest. It was the one who would be sent after another had left that, that had not previously in person been there before and therefore the, the newcomer on the scene, the, the guest, the Holy Spirit of God. Furthermore, the idea of spirit alone can cause us difficulty and problems with, with the concept of it being a, a, a divine entity. But the Bible is abundantly clear that, that is the case. In fact, there, there are some, some, some teachings in our religious world. For example, one, one prominent religion uh, says the Holy Spirit is the active force of God. In their definition, it is not a person, but a powerful force that God causes to emanate from Himself to accomplish His holy will. Friends, the Holy Spirit is not a mere force. It's not a projection of God into the world. In fact, the Bible abundantly clarifies to us that the spirit can speak matthew 10 20 he can teach john 14 26 he can bear witness john 15 26 he can guide and declare john 16 13 he can send acts 10 20 and forbid acts 16 6 he can search and know first corinthians 2 11 he has a will first corinthians 12 he offers help romans 8 and he can love romans 15 that's a person. As real and as distinct as God the Father. As real and as distinct as God 
the Son. There's a, there's a statement that Jesus makes in John 16, 14 about his relationship with the Spirit. He says this, He will glorify me. Now, that simple statement alone is interesting to me. Because to, to believe that the Holy Spirit is an it would be to go against the very grammatical arrangement of Jesus' statement about the Spirit in Himself. If the me pronoun refers to Jesus, then the he pronoun refers to the Spirit, and both are personal pronouns. Not a, not a, a, a force, not a will, not a movement, but a real separate entity. He can be grieved, he can be lied to, he can be blasphemed, he can be resisted, and he can be insulted, all according to the New Testament. Spirit is a divine person. If it needs to be said, then I will say it, that the Spirit also possesses all attributes of deity. Just some references if you're taking notes want to write these down. Hebrews 9.14 speaks to the fact that the Spirit is eternal. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 11 speaks to the fact that He has all knowledge. And then Psalm 139.7 speaks to the fact that He is omnipresent. He's eternal. He's everywhere. He knows all things. If I make that statement, you might think, well, He's talking about God the Father. Or you might think He's talking about God the Son. The Bible says that about God the Spirit. He is a a separate entity, a person distinct from the Father, distinct from the Son, possessing all attributes of deity. Thus, as we begin this entire series, three in one, and each individually not possessing any less deity than the other two. A divine person. Number two, the presence of the Spirit represents the Christian age. The presence of the Spirit represents the Christian age. Now I said, got to cover a lot of ground, a lot of material to do any of these. This could have been a six-part series at least on the Holy Spirit. Just bear with me for a moment. The Holy Spirit was certainly active in the Old Testament. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 5, God spoke of His Spirit abiding in the midst of His people as they left Egypt. The Spirit came upon men like Saul and David in 1 Samuel 10 and verse 6 to make them kings or to make them prophets. The Spirit was certainly active. David said in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and His word was on my tongue. But the Old Testament also looked forward to a time when the Spirit would be more involved. That the Spirit would be more visible more recognizable, almost the defining moment of the Christian age. Isaiah wrote about his, the the servant of God, my servant, God would call him, upon whom his spirit would be, Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Joel chapter 2 and verse 28 talked about a time in which the spirit of God would be poured out upon all flesh. And that would be the day of salvation. So the Old Testament had the, the, the spirit functioning in it, but had reference points to the fact that his role would be greater or at least more visible in the future. Now open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 9. It's going to take just just a a three-passage journey to emphasize this. In Mark chapter 9 in verse 1, and none none of these passages will be new to you, I suppose, this morning. I don't assume they will be anyway. Talking about the, the Holy Spirit... And it's in his presence representing the Christian age, the Christian dispensation, the last days, the time in which we live. 
Jesus said in Mark 9, 1, Truly I say to you that there are some of you who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now that passage alone doesn't really reveal anything to us. But if you go forward in the text, go over to Acts chapter 1. Go to Acts chapter 1 now. If we generally follow this chain, if we had more time, we would stop and look at a couple of other passages along the way. But there is a direct link between the statement of Mark 9, 1 and the statement of Acts 1, 8. Here Jesus talking to his disciples just before his ascension says, but, if you will receive, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Remember, Mark 9, 1, some of you will be living when the kingdom comes and it will come with power. Acts 1, 8, you will, be, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Well, what happens in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4? The Spirit descends, right? In fact, verse 4 says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and, he began, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. There's the power. There's the Spirit. There's the kingdom. There's the Christian age. We, we've often said the church was founded on Pentecost, that the Christian age began at the revelation of the, of the, of the new law through the Spirit in Pentecost. That's why Peter would say when he stood up, when the accusation was made that these men were speaking in these other languages because they were drunk, he'd say, they're not drunk. This is what Joel was talking about. What does he mean? The, the prophecy we read a moment ago from Joel 2, beginning in verse 28. It's the marking of the beginning of the Christian dispensation. It's why, friends, in Acts 19, when Paul meets some in Ephesus who've been baptized, he wanted to know if they had the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because there was a baptism prior to the kingdom establishment. It was the baptism of John. It was also for the remission of sins, but anticipation of the kingdom, not because the kingdom had come. And Paul said the defining difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of, of Christ was the presence of the Spirit in those who have been baptized. It's the marking of the beginning of the Christian dispensation. We have to believe that. The Bible plainly teaches us that. That helps us then with some other passages of the New Testament. For example, the entirety of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of death. The ministry of the Spirit and the, and the ministry of law. And so many people read that and they'll say, see, in, in the Old Testament we were under law, in the New Testament we're under, we have freedom because there was law in the Old Testament but there's Spirit in the New Testament. That's not what he's saying in, in 2 Corinthians 3. He's saying just as death and law codes define the Old Testament age, the presence of the Spirit defines a New Testament age. He's not speaking in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 about the manner in which the Spirit operates or the how of the New Covenant, just the defining aspect of it. When the Spirit is there, the New Covenant is present. I, I believe the same discussion is underway in Galatians chapter 5. You know, the book of Galatians is all about people who tried to go back to the Old Testament to find their salvation. They have been delivered from the bondage of sin. They had also been, been delivered from the bondage of the Judaizing teachers. And yet now they were, they were blending Christ with, <coughs> with Moses. In fact, look at, look at Galatians 5 if you turned over there. Verse 18 says this. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What law is he talking about? Again, some would like that to mean any law at all. 
No, he means if, you are, if you're led by the Spirit, you're in a different dispensation now. You've, you've become part of a different covenant that's defined by the presence of the Spirit in that covenant. And so when he tells them in chapter 5 to be led by the Spirit, to be guided by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to live in the Spirit, He's telling them to choose the new covenant over the old covenant. Now, the Spirit's role we'll talk about more in a moment. But I see Galatians 5, just like 2 Corinthians 3, as an overview, as, as a distinction between what is offered by other religious systems of the world and what's offered by God. And the Spirit is one of the defining aspects of that offer. And so the Spirit is a divine person. The Spirit is, is present in the new covenant, and it defines His presence defines that. Number three, some work of the Holy Spirit has been completed. Some work of the Holy Spirit's been completed. I think that you and I would agree on most points so far and this one. I say that because to say that the Spirit is continually active today or even to say that God the Father is continually active today gives people difficulty as if God's still doing everything He's always done. Even God finished work, didn't He? In the creation week, God finishes work and He rested. He didn't stop working. He just stopped working in that situation for that, for that benefit for those people. But He did other things later. Jesus Himself finished his work in fact he cried from the cross didn't he it is finished but is jesus no longer active does he not stand as our our mediator our advocate today our intercessor certainly he does finishing one work doesn't mean you're not active in another work the holy spirit has finished some work i would say two things that the spirit has finished doing he has finished number one the work of revelation he's finished the work of revelation there are two passages, and really there are, there are three chapters, but two passages that sort of come to the, to the surface when we talk about the, the Spirit's work in Revelation that are found in the New Testament. They're both in the Gospel of John, John 14, John 16. In John 14, 26, the Bible says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And then a couple of chapters over in John 16 and verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose, he will disclose to you what is to come. Now, it's one of those moments and one of those places where if we're not careful to look at the text, the context, and the, and the audience, that we will make this passage a universal passage. When you follow the thread and the theme of the book of John, Jesus has had a public ministry up until chapter 12. In chapter 13, it gets very private and very intimate. In fact, only present in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are the 12 and then the 11 once Judas leaves. The promise of being guided into all truth is limited. And it's for the work of revelation of the will of God. I know that, and I know that's the case because the Bible says he will bring, verse, the passage in chapter 14, he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. For example, that's a universal offer to every Christian that through the work of the Spirit we will be reminded and it will be brought to our remembrance, it will be brought to the forefront of our, of our, of our mind's eye everything God has done 
then we miss the rest of that passage. It's the things Jesus said to those men. You know, is it hard for you to remember sometimes when you read a story in the Gospels, which Gospel you found that in? Maybe it was in Matthew, maybe it was in Mark, maybe it was in Luke, and then it ends up being in John. So just can't keep it straight. We also know that there are things that Jesus said and things that he did and instruction that he gave that we don't have recorded. Could you imagine trying to remember three and a half years of Jesus' lessons? It would have been great to be there. And we would have tried to soak up everything that we could. But generally, we don't even sit through a 25 to 35-minute sermon and, and can remember, what, was, was, did he say that in Bible class or in the sermon? Was that this week or last week? And that's 30 minutes of instruction. She said, listen, I know I've said a lot, and I know you've struggled with and wrestled with a lot of it. Don't worry about it. When I'm gone, the Spirit will come, and when you need it, he'll provide it. And that's a miraculous reminder. And what would they do with that? Well, they would take it and they'd write it down. Paul said, when you read, you would understand his knowledge of the mystery, that which has been revealed to him through the Holy Spirit. We're told in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8 that prophecy would fail or be done away. That tongues would be done away, that knowledge would be done away, miraculous. There would come a point in which everything had been revealed and it had been recorded and it had been confirmed and the work of the Spirit and revelation would be done. Friends, we live in that day. We have the completeness of revelation. The Spirit doesn't have to continue that work. Furthermore, we won't spend a lot of time here, the work of the Spirit and confirmation of that word has been completed. See, finishing that thought of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8 comes verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 describe a partial revelation system where you would get a piece at a time and you didn't have Matthew or Mark or Luke or Acts to go to and verify the claim that you were making. And so signs would be given to those who preached, Mark 16 and verse 20, Acts 8 verses 4 and 5. Instead of being able to turn to book, chapter, and verse and say, see, Jesus said this in, in Matthew chapter 3, a man would say it and then he would heal the sick. And that would be sort of like saying Jesus said in Matthew chapter 3. Hey, I believe that guy. He just verified what he said with the power of miracles. But that work is also over. The revelation of the word of God and the confirmation of the word of God was done by the Spirit in the first century. And it was completed But notice the thought in this point about the Holy Spirit is that some of his work is done. You see, some believe that's all the Spirit ever did. He revealed and he confirmed. And if that's all he had ever done, that's all that, that had been provided in the Godhead for his role, we would be benefited, no doubt. But the Bible teaches differently than that, doesn't it? And so let's look at number four. And here's where both start to take aim. Some of the Spirit's work is still ongoing. Our God is active. We started with that premise in our opening overall lesson. And we depend on that activity. His grace and mercy, His love, protection is providence we count on that we assume that it's the case but with with the with the spirit it becomes difficult really the the rest of the lesson 
should help us with this. This, this, this point number four could be one. But we broke down a couple of other subpoints in, in, in five and six that maybe help us, okay? So let's think in general terms. The Spirit's work is still ongoing. How do I know that? Well, David mentioned in his prayer earlier about the role of the Holy Spirit in intercession, Romans 8, 26. It's there, friends. I've, I've heard it explained it away. I have explained it away as being a first century phenomenon, a place when men didn't know how to pray and the Spirit came and, and taught them. But that's not the context of Romans 8. The context of Romans 8 is a man who, who's been distraught in, in chapter 7 because uh, of, of, of having one foot in the world and one foot in Christ, not literally, but, but having a, a draw to go back and do the things that he ought not do and, and, and the tension that that brings into my life. Living in a world that's, that, that's decaying, that's rotting, that's filled with wickedness, being influenced by those things, being limited in what I can grasp, what I can understand, and then going before God and having to have the exact right words. The Spirit's promised on our behalf to intercede, Romans 8. In fact, it's not promised, it's just stated. It happened. Now, how and why and how often? Because those are the questions that, that I feel like we get bogged down on so much that we, we try to dismiss the plain Bible teaching that, it, that it's true. The Spirit, according to Romans 8, and we have no passage like we do in 1 Corinthians 13 to show that ends, the Spirit would still make intercession if need be and when need be for the saints. The Spirit still works in redemption. The Spirit still works in redemption. I know that because people are still being saved. Look at Titus chapter 3 for a moment. Look at Titus chapter 3. Tried to be selective at where I slow down and ask you to turn just because of all the passages that we're considering today. But I think Titus 3 is an important one as it pertains to the role of the Spirit in conversion. The Bible says, beginning in verse 5, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we have been made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The Spirit has a role in our redemption. We are in the process of salvation renewed by the Spirit. Now, for lack of time, I will just say this. I believe that's what's being referenced in places like 1 Corinthians 12. The Bible says that we are baptized by one spirit into one body. I believe it's what John 3, 3 through 5 talks about, of being born of the water and the spirit. The spirit has a role in that. Now, remember, the spirit's role in salvation cannot overstep anybody's bounds any more than the father's role in salvation or, the, or, or Christ's role in salvation. I will, I will not be saved from my sins unless renewed by the Holy Spirit or else Paul is just adding filler in Titus 3, 5 and following. There's something to his role there. Now, when does that happen? How does that happen? What's that look like? Friends, the Bible doesn't explain that. It just says he does that. He renews us. Not apart from salvation in Christ, not apart from the blood that he shed, not apart from the waters of baptism, but he does renew. God does save. The blood does wash. All of those things are accurate statements in Scripture. He works in intercession. He works in redemption. He works in strengthening the church. Ephesians 3 and verse 16. 
that he might grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in the inner man. Now it's that last one that we'll leave for these other two subtitles or subpoints in a moment. Let me say this. What you will not find as the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is the illumination of the Word of God. That it is a dead letter until the Spirit revives it in my heart. That, that, that He becomes someone who explains the Bible to us. Paul said in Ephesians that he wanted them to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that their hearts would be enlightened. He said to the Colossians that he wanted them to be filled with wisdom and understanding, yet he never attributed that work directly to the Holy Spirit in doing that. Because here's, here's the problem. People will say, okay, I'm going to read and, and I'm going to memorize and I'm going to let the Holy Spirit activate that word, bring that to life in my heart. Help me to see what verse matters. I've had people say before, you know, I was going to do Devo the other night and I just happened to open this verse and the Holy Spirit led me there. Friends, you won't find that type of involvement of the Spirit in the life of a Christian in the New Testament. Any more than you'll find that involvement of Jesus Christ or God the Father in the New Testament. This type of work is subjective, elusive, it's non-definable. To argue then for something being laid on my heart, for something opening my eyes, for something that I just can't explain or I just felt it. The Spirit is not pictured as a comforting presence when I'm stressed or an arbitrary visitor when I pray. His presence is not felt like the wind or a mysterious calm in our hearts. Teaching a class many, many years ago on the role of the Spirit, I was probably the least educated person of the Holy Spirit in the room when I, when, I, when I taught it at a very, very young age. But I ask about the, the presence and the feeling of the Holy Spirit because that's, that's what people say in the religious world. I felt the Spirit. I felt the Spirit. So I asked them, and I asked them sort of as a surface, we all agree that this is sort of bogus, so let me just throw this out there so we can all get along. And I said, have you ever felt the Spirit? And the lady raised her hand. She said, yes. Well, in my late teen years... I was a little bit taken back by that. And so I asked, and she said, I prayed, and I just felt the warmth. Friends, as much as we want to be calmed by God, a feeling that's indefinable by Scripture cannot be attributed to the work of God with clarity. It just can't. Some of that work continues. So... What about this strengthening? I think there are two other things that need to be considered. Number one, number four, or five overall, the Spirit indwells the Christian. The Spirit indwells the Christian. Again, it's one of those things that I don't have any trouble saying because the Bible is plain. We read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He told them earlier in that that letter in chapter 3 and verse 16 do you not know that you are the temple of god and the spirit of god dwells in you second timothy 1 14 says guard through the holy spirit who dwells in you the treasure which has been entrusted to you romans 8 and verse 11 says but the spirit of him who raised jesus dwells in you by the way he makes that statement as an understood thought those people knew the spirit indwelled them all right so that's true the question always comes in where the debate starts is how. How? In what way? Now, I don't know outside of the churches of Christ how much this is debated. I'm I'm going to just suggest that they don't debate it as much as we do. 
I don't know because I don't run in those circles and live in that environment, but I'm going to guess that they don't debate it quite as much. I'm going to suggest you if you study the history of it, we didn't debate it. Through the history of the Lord's church until the last 100 to 150 years, as much as we do now. There are two prominent schools of thought. One is the Holy Spirit indwells the Christian indirectly by, by, by proxy of the Word of God as a, a, in a representative way. And, and I don't know best how to define this. In fact, I don't really know how to define either one of them with, with great clarity. But, but, the, but the best way I suppose we could define this one is someone comes to me and says, I see your Father in you. My father's not here, so I can say, I hope people don't say that. I'm kidding, but I can say that because he's not here. I see your father in you. You sound like him. You look like him. You walk like him. He dwells in you. I know it's true, by the way. I can't avoid it or deny it. He dwells in you. That's, to me, it's a great compliment, especially if it's someone who I admire and I've learned from and I want to emulate. And so if the world can see God in us through our actions, representatively, that's a tremendous thought. Now I know for those who believe in a representative indwelling may go a little further than that. But to the best of my ability, I'll describe it that way. The other option is that the Spirit is personally or literally in every Christian. Now, I say that we haven't debated it. I think there have always been two schools of thought. It's just been accepted that one believes in one way and one believes in another way, and there's no reason to hash it out. I sort of wish, and I'm not for one for turning back time and going back in, into the past. I, I believe in progress and moving forward. But if I could go anywhere in the past, it would be to a time when both sides would agree that, okay, there's an option and let's move on. Let's discuss things that matter more than the mode and method of the indwelling. But we're, we don't live in that time. We live in this time. The idea that the Spirit literally is there would not necessarily need to be defined. Rather, it would need to be limited. What do you mean by that? Well, we obviously know that when the, the Godhead indwelled a bodily form, that the incarnation took place. Okay, And so there has to be a limit to that concept and that thought. And I believe that most who believe in that have a, a limited thought or concept of it. Here are two things I think we have to avoid. Let's not diminish the Spirit's presence in our lives by suggesting that He is a mere generational influence handed down. Okay? I'm not saying that we can't believe in a representative indwelling, but it needs to be more than just, hey, I heard about the Spirit and I heard what He said, therefore the Spirit lives in me because I read the Bible. There's more to the biblical text than that about the Spirit's place. How much more? I don't know exactly. But it's there in the text as an identifying mark of this new covenant, of a, of a believer's commitment to God. Someone said, well, see, we have the Bible, and so we don't need the Spirit. Friends, that's the issue that comes to light that causes so much strife. Listen, they had the Old Testament Scriptures, and yet God still dwelt in their presence. His glory was still visible to them. We also need to draw another line. And then let's not assume that if he is literally with me, or even representatively with me, 
that his presence takes away my free will, undoes my personal accountability to God, or that he's now more concerned, and I don't mean to be callous, he's more concerned with parking spaces, mud puddles, and rainstorms than he is redemption and reconciliation to God. Because that's generally where his work is attributed to. Well, it was raining the other day and, and, and someone cut me off and the Holy Spirit was looking out for me. He was guiding me. He was there with me and protected me. Friends, when I claim God's work, either God the Father, Son, or the Spirit, in a particular action, it needs to be consistent with the way he's acted in concert with his people throughout history and time. He also doesn't really care if we get our shoes messed up or if the dog gets out of the backyard or for food served cold at a restaurant. And yet people will attribute that failure to the lack of the Holy Spirit's involvement or the successes in those small victories in life to the Holy Spirit being present. Such makes a mockery of the divine place among his people. So then number six. The Spirit, no matter how he indwells, works through a medium. What do I mean by that? How does the Spirit strengthen or guide or, or lead or encourage? How does that work? Again, the best I can understand from Scripture is that the Spirit works and does all of those things, but He does so through a medium. If I go cut my yard, mow my lawn, I can promise you it will not be with a pair of scissors on my hands and knees. I will hopefully be riding a lawn mower. Maybe be pushing one, maybe holding a weed eater. I prefer the first to all the three that are, that are there. But I'm still mowing the grass, aren't I? But I am doing it through the means of something else. Having a lawnmower sitting in my garage does not make my grass cut. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't even out the weeds. It doesn't trim up the sidewalk. It's my action through that medium that makes it possible. The illustration I always heard growing up was that if I were going to chop down a tree, I would use an axe. I'd probably use a chainsaw before I'd use an axe, but I'd use one or the other. But I could readily easily say that I cut down that tree. And you would know full well I must have done it with something other than my bare hands. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17... That the, that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. You know, it's been said before that when we diminish the role of the Spirit in the life of a Christian by connecting it so closely to the Word of God that we make the Holy Spirit equal to the Bible. So let me just say this right now. That's not the case. But I will tell you this. When you read, and I have a, a chart in my hands that, that uh, you know, there are similar charts that float around all over in our notes, in our, in our Bible studies, that suggest that there are a number of things, as many as 25 things in Scripture that the Holy Spirit does, that the Word of God does. Sanctifies, saves, makes alive, uh, makes free, leads, sanctifies, bears witness, walks, uh, or what let, leads in walking, uh, builds, comforts, washes, convicts. Which leads people to say, see, if I have the Bible and it does all those things, I don't need the Holy Spirit to do it. I think we're missing the whole point of the text. And that is that the Spirit will do that through the Word. Spirit cannot convict where the Word does not dwell. The Spirit cannot strengthen where the Word has not been implanted. The Spirit cannot make alive where the Word has not been loved and appreciated and cultivated. 
We get caught up in phrases like word only or separate and apart or direct or indirect. Friends, where the Bible is, the Spirit can work. How does that happen? Friends, that's for somebody smarter than me. But I love the illustration I was given a long, long time ago. Can you explain how when you plant a seed in the ground that life comes out of it? A cliff can probably come as close to anybody in this room explaining that to us. And he's tried to explain it to me. But in the end of the day, there's still something about that process, about that life-giving power that I don't fully grasp. But you know what? When I see a corn stalk come up, I don't think there's a miracle. I don't think, you know, when no one planted a seed right there and, and, and the corn decided it just wanted to grow anyway. No. That's why we're told in Luke chapter 8 and verse 11, the seed's the word of God. And where the word of God is planted, the spirit can and will work to produce life. He will also strengthen and he will guide and he will lead through that same word and with that same power. It will not diminish my free will. It will not, it will not take away my accountability. It will not in any way be arbitrary or mundane, but it will be for the purpose of salvation, sanctification, and reconciliation. Friends, you and I are here right now as New Testament Christians because the Spirit worked in our hearts. We are. Because the Bible says we are. And He will continue to work with us and for us through the means and mode of the Word of God so long as we will accept His Word and let it cultivate in our heart. And I'm convinced that should be good enough. I'm convinced it should be enough that we truly believe that. It doesn't take away responsibility. It doesn't make me sit back, kick my feet up and say, God's going to do it all. In fact, it does just the opposite. Is I want to be strengthened and I want to be encouraged and I want life to spring forth from me. And so I'm going to dedicate my life and my will to God and His Word and let God work where He works. Can we do that? Can we trust that? If so, then maybe we can leave here today without just a, well, I don't understand the Spirit. Or Wayne doesn't believe in such and such indwelling. Or Wayne didn't explain the, 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 the grief of the Holy Spirit, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Those would probably be three on your list had I given you the option, but they weren't on mine. Salvation is the key to it all. And God through His Son and His Spirit, offers that to you today. We are a Christian become one. Be washed in water for the remission of sins, wherein you will contact His blood and be renewed by the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. If you haven't done that, we can talk about all this other stuff later. Take care of that and come to Him while we stand and sing.